error number one of the preacher, I've come without a watch. Um, when it gets to about 20 minutes, uh, Anthony, would you sort of stand up and start waving your arms in the air? I'll know it's not a charismatic moment for you. <laughs> Light of the world, shine on us living in darkness. Dispel the shadow of death and guide our feet into the path of peace. Amen. Good people with good news struck dumb at home embarrassed. Could be you, could be me. It was definitely Zachariah and Elizabeth struck dumb and embarrassed. Can you imagine the conversation at Zachariah and Elizabeth's tea table? It went something like this. Zachariah, I can't take this bump to the bazaar. Not at my age. We need some potatoes. You're going to have to go. And Zachariah said, Mm-hmm. Yes, potatoes, Zachariah. I need you to go and get some potatoes. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so Zachariah went to the bazaar and he was greeted by the, uh, the, the vegetable seller. Hello, Zachariah. How are things? Here, everything's going very well. Mm-hmm. That was shut up. Mm-hmm. <laughs> What's that, Zachariah? You want some mandrakes? I can interest you in mandrakes. They're very good for a man of your age. <laughs> and so it went on. They endured the ridicule of the people in the village, no doubt. Have you heard what's happened at their age? Can you imagine it? What a surprise. There are four supernatural births recounted in the scriptures. There's Sarah expecting Isaac. And it was met with laughter. There was Mrs. Manoah and Samson. And that was met with confusion. There's Elizabeth and John the Baptist, Mary and Jesus. Elizabeth and John the Baptist, of course, Zachariah meets the announcement with disbelief. How can I know that this is going to happen? Well, you're going to be quiet for the next nine months. That's how you'll know. And so Elizabeth hid her pregnancy for five months, the scripture tells us. Embarrassed and silenced, she retreated from public life, speechless and blushing. The elderly couple went home and giggled about the good news and wondered how it had all happened. And Zachariah has got nine months to work on what he's going to say. And the scripture tells us his father, Zechariah, was filled with the Holy Spirit, verse 67, and prophesied. A key mark of being filled with the Holy Spirit is the ability to quote scripture. You see it on the day of Pentecost. Peter stood up with the, with the, with the disciples. Filled with the Holy Spirit, he starts quoting from the book of Joel. If you want to see someone filled with the Holy Spirit, the scriptures are frequently on their lips. Praise be to the Lord, the God of Israel. That's the opening 
the opening gambit. It's a blunderbuss set of quotations from the Old Testament. He picks a bit here, a bit there. It's really an Old Testament overview in, um, well, 10, 11 verses. Praise be to the Lord, the God of Israel. That's the punctuation mark that comes at the end of most of the, the groupings of the Psalms. It comes in Psalm 41, 72, 106. At the end of each book of the Psalms, it's, this is the punctuation mark. Praise be to the Lord, the God of Israel. It was also David's opening uh, prayer uh, for the dedication of materials for the temple. Because he's come to his people and redeemed them. So he lights on the book of Psalms. Now he's gone off to the book of Exodus where God first reveals himself as redeemer. In Exodus 3, 7, the Lord says to Moses, I've seen the misery. I've heard their crying. I am concerned. I have come down. He has come to his people and redeemed them. Therefore say to the Israelites in Exodus 6, 6, I am the Lord and I will bring you out from under the yoke of the Egyptians. I will free you from being slaves to them. I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with mighty acts of judgment. He has come to his people and redeemed them. This was the great defining moment of Israel's nationhood. The Lord was taking them out of one nation, molding them into an identifiable group in the desert with the law, giving them water and meat and bread and a covenant and ushers them into their new homeland. And it was a fulfilment of part of God's promise to Abraham, at least of a nation and a land. And the redemption was multifaceted. If you get the opportunity to read this book, The Mission of God's People by Chris Wright, it's an excellent exposition of what we're meant to be at as the people of God and has informed a lot of my thinking uh, for this evening. The redemption was multifaceted. It was political. It was release of an enslaved group out of one nation into freedom. It was economic. They were slaves. They didn't receive an income. They became a people who got one, week off, one day off a week, three weeks off a year. It was a military victory over a world superpower. It was spiritual release. When, when Moses says to Pharaoh, let my people go that they may serve me, worship me, it's the same. The Israelites were serving Pharaoh. They transferred their service, their life's work, their allegiance, their loyalty from Pharaoh to the Lord their God. And we see a great promise in Isaiah 59 at the end of the chapter. The Redeemer will come to Zion to those in Jacob who repent of their sins, declares the Lord. So that's uh, the first verse. He's raised up a horn of salvation for us. What was the horn? Well, a musical instrument made of a ram's horn, a military weapon in the defeat of Jericho, a container of anointing oil for Samuel to use on David, a mascot or a symbol of authority, part of the altar, 
He's raised up a horn of salvation in the house of his servant David as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us. So now he's gone from the Psalms to Moses. Now he's come to David. And the the Old Testament is full of promises. The Lord had said to David himself, you're not going to build me a house. I'm going to build you a house. And then the prophets picked that up each time. The root of Jesse, the son of David, he's going to come, he's going to come. You find it in Isaiah 9, Isaiah 11, 16, 22, Jeremiah 23, Jeremiah 33, Ezekiel 34, Ezekiel 37, Hosea 3, Amos 9, Zechariah 13. This promise that David's greater son was going to come filled these Jewish people with a hope that God was going to do something. And then this man, Zechariah, who's been struck dumb for nine months, comes out and says, praise be to the Lord, the God of Israel. He has visited us. He's raised up a horn of salvation in the house of his servant, David. A king is here. The king is here. And of course, David was the archetype of the great godly leader. A great military uh, strategist, the sweet psalmist of Israel, prolific songwriter, the one whose heir would reign forever, the fond hope of the kingless Jews. Now, why do I call them kingless? Because their own king, Herod, was no Jew at all. We'll come to that in a second. To show mercy, verse 72, to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath that he swore to our father Abraham. So he's done the Psalms, he's done Moses, he's touched on David, now he goes to Abraham. It's not quite in chronological order, but there is a a reason behind this, that the king is coming, but let's go back further to the promise to Abraham. Abraham, who man who bucked the trend, the whole of humanity drifting eastward to build its tower at Babel, And the Lord picks one of them and says, no, 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 I want you to go west. They had all gathered together to build a tower. He lived in a tent. They were scattered by the Lord. And Abraham, is instead of being scattered, is to receive a blessing of land, of a nation, and a channel of blessing to all the scattered nations. A blessing to those who bless Abraham's offspring and a curse on those who curse them. To grant us that we being delivered from the hand of our enemies might serve him without fear, verse 74, in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. When, when we get to the beginning of the New Testament, there's been 400 years of silence, 400 or so years of silence. Nothing's really happened from the end of the Old Testament to the New, but something has been happening. The Greeks had come and destroyed the Persian Empire and taken it over. The Greek Empire itself had destroyed itself and gone into, or or disintegrated and gone into four parts. Two of them, the Ptolemaics in Egypt and um, uh, Antiochus Epiphanes and his group in, in what is now Turkey, basically spent the next few hundred years in civil war 
using what we call the Holy Land as their battlefield. And then the Maccabees had arisen and thrown off the Greek uh, yoke for a few years before the Romans came in and started again. And in the middle of all of this, there was quite bad civil war, the Jewish wars, the Jewish civil wars. The Sadducees, just a few decades before Jesus was born, had crucified 800 Pharisees in Jerusalem. This was the level of hatred between them. At the same time, the Romans were now coming in and the Romans were having their own civil war. Julius Caesar and Pompey had it out in what is now um, Palestine in, in, near Ashkelon. And Herod's father was a um, mercenary who fought on behalf of the Pharisees. He was an imported mercenary, but he was given the kingship by the Romans once Julius Caesar had finished off Pompey. So there were three civil wars going on. The Jewish civil war, as a consequence of the Greek civil war, now overshadowed by the Roman civil war, and this pretender king had built a temple. And into that temple goes Zechariah. Can you imagine? It would be like, well, I don't know, who's your favourite, most upright evangelical scholar being invited to the Palace of Westminster to celebrate Mass? And he's not expecting to be visited by an angel. But the angel of the Lord is so gracious as to come to an upright man fulfilling his role in the temple in a divided society, and says, Zachariah, your prayers have been answered. You're going to have a child. And the things that Zachariah now prophesies echo what the angel said to him. That's the first half. The first half is addressed to God. Praise be to the Lord, the God of Israel, because he's done this. He's, he's, he's saved us. He's given us the promise of a king. He's given us the promise of a covenant. He's redeemed us as a people. We're going to be released from all this warfare that's going on over the top of us. And you, my child, will be called a prophet of the Most High. For you will go before the Lord to prepare his way. And now he's picking up themes out of Isaiah and Malachi. A voice of one crying in the wilderness from Isaiah 40. This is the warm-up act before the band. This is the voice of judgment before the message of salvation. This is the dirge before the dance. The prophet of doom before the prince of peace. The plowman before the sower. And what's he going to do? He's going to give the knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of their sins. John's first sermon acknowledged this role and he quoted indeed from Isaiah 40 just as Zechariah is doing so. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight, 
Every valley shall be filled, every mountain and hill shall be made low, and the crooked shall become straight, and the rough places shall become level, and all flesh, all nations, all peoples will see the salvation of God. This salvation that they'd been expecting was not going to be limited to their own little parish. This salvation that the Lord God was bringing was for the entire world. And John had got it right in his opening sermon. Because of the tender mercy of our God, verse 78, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high. He's now quoting from Malachi 4, the day of the Lord, the rising of the son of righteousness with healing in his wings. The second coming of Elijah, The messenger is going to come before the face of the Lord himself. The messenger who will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and children to their fathers, just as the angel had promised Zechariah. And now he goes on. Another thing it's going to do is to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death, to guide our feet into the way of peace. He's now picking up the idea of you're going to be a light to the nations. It's too small a thing for you that you're going to restore the the fortunes of Israel. I'm going to make you a light to the Gentiles. Isaiah 42, 49, 58, 60. And in the shadow of death, maybe alluding to Psalm 23, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, Arise, shine, for your light has come, and the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. For behold, darkness shall cover the earth, and thick darkness the peoples. But the Lord will rise upon you, and his glory will be seen upon you, and nations shall come to your light, and kings to the brightness of your rising. That's Isaiah 60. You've got the concept here of the light of the glory of God shining on his people, being diffused out, and the nations being drawn in. The radiance is seen by the surrounding nations, and this is the mission of God, that all people, all nations, are gathered around the throne, and they will acknowledge that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father whether out of adoration or out of abject fear, and we'll see some of that tomorrow as we look at the song around the throne. Come out of the shadow of death into the glorious light, and peace will be their governor, and the Lord will always guide them. Well, what's this got to do with mission? It's a a random... Uh, almost a random scattering of verses from the Old Testament. Um, how do you drive a, an expositional line through this? How, how, where do you go with this? Zachariah's song has got the two halves. The liberty brought by God, salvation, release, redemption, to enable us to serve him without fear. And then this is the job that John has been given to do, and you, my child, the light being demonstrated by God's people. You're going to prepare the way for him who's coming to give his people the knowledge of salvation. This is what God has done. This is where we're going. 
Jesus picks up the theme of light dawning. I'm the light of the world, he says. You're the light of the world. Let your light so shine before people that they see your good deeds and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Paul picks up the idea. Give thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He's delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sin. Peter picks up the theme. You're a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. We think, great. Oh, that's great, man. Holy nation, great people. Why? To declare the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into light. The purpose of election is mission. The purpose of being God's chosen people is to extend that to others. The purpose that Abraham was given the promises for was so that in him all nations would be blessed. And John picks up the message as well. This is the message we've heard from him and declared to you. God is light. In him there is no darkness at all. We have been chosen to declare. We have been enlightened to pass on that light to others. We have been forgiven to extend that forgiveness to those around us. We have been the recipient of all God's grace. Let us therefore pass it on. Freely, freely, we have received. Freely, freely, give. So praise be to the Lord, the God of Israel, because he's shown mercy. He's remembered his covenant. He has come to rescue and he has come to enable us to serve him in peace so that we can prepare the way to give knowledge of salvation, to shine in the darkness and that peace may guide our feet. Let's pray. Light of the world, shine on us living in darkness. Untie our tongues to worship and to praise you. Do not let us hide your blessing at home in embarrassment. Do not let us be silent. But deliver us from the shadow of death and guide our feet into the path of peace. Amen.